You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Well, let's go into our message tonight. The title of this message is Jesus, the Friend of Sinners. And in introduction, I want to read Luke chapter 19 and verse 6. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I love the story of Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. Um, not just because he's short. He was a short guy. He had trouble seeing Jesus. Jesus, at that point in his ministry, was very famous. So whenever he went through a village or a town, there would be a great group of people, throngs of people would come and press in around him, and even thousands. So if this poor guy, Zacchaeus, was not tall enough to get a good look at Jesus, so he decided to find some way to get a higher altitude, an elevation where he could see over the heads of the people. And he looked up ahead in the road at a point where Jesus would be walking, and he saw a tree. So he ran to that tree, and he climbed up and got himself in a position advantageous to him to see Jesus, make eye contact with Jesus. And I love, there's so much in that passage about a heart for God, about seeking God, and making provision for something that's not yet come. Uh, we seek God for an encounter. We seek God for a visitation. But we have to do things for God to see that we are serious about that visitation. Those in the upper room, 10 days praying without stop. Azusa Street Revival, they prayed and prayed and believed. Every major move of God has somebody climbing a tree, putting themselves in a position at a specific place and time for Jesus to take notice and respond. And that's exactly what happens. And it should be a wonderful occasion for everyone. Everybody there should be happy at the fact that this guy Zacchaeus connected to Jesus in a way that nobody else in the crowd connected. If I were in a church service and suddenly you fall on the ground screaming and later you tell me that God took you to heaven and showed you the pearly gates and the golden streets and, and you dance with angels, whatever, uh, I'm not going to be angry at you and be upset because I think that I maybe should have deserved to do that. I may be envious to some degree, but if Zacchaeus climbs a tree and has an encounter with Jesus and Jesus singles him out with this great honor to say, I'm going to your house to eat. Actually, Jesus is inviting himself to his house to eat dinner. And Zacchaeus was thrilled about this. And there were other people in the crowd, many people in the crowd, who were much more noble than this man. Because he was a tax collector. He was a sinner. The kind of people that that were ostracized from the mainstream religious community. But yet Jesus chose him out of the tree because he showed something. There were no Pharisees in the trees that day. There were no scribes swinging on ropes like monkeys. They were, they were not trying to. They were just part of the, the mediocre people just observing, watching. They may have been present, but Zacchaeus really wanted to connect with him. Jesus was called the friend of sinners on a few occasions in the Bible, but this term was always derogative. When you hear it in the Bible, it's from people who disagreed with it. So anybody that called you as the friend of sinners was because they were criticizing him. The sinners just called him friend. The sinners did not care whether they were sinners or not, and apparently Jesus did not really care so much that they were sinners when it came to forming a relationship. And this is where he got this reputation. And they meant it as an insult. So really the Pharisees, the religious people, from their own sense of self-righteousness and superiority, they kept their distance from people like Zacchaeus, tax collectors, publicans, or sinners. Whereas Jesus conversed with and even dined with them in order 
to be to enter their world and be a part of them. And so that's why I like this story about Zacchaeus. And then I've been thinking a lot about this. We see Jesus singling this man out, and through his entire earthly ministry, he's doing this and finding people who apparently do not deserve to have such an honor. So the question is, why? Why did Jesus prefer to keep company with the bad people? Why did Jesus choose them above the ones who truly believe they were more noble and more eligible for a one-on-one -on -one encounter with someone like Messiah? So this is really what this message is all about. We're going to discover why. And so we're going to see four parts to this message. This is uh, to this passage, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Does it have the title? There four parts? Do I have that on? What's next? Just go to the... Okay, we go straight into um, part one. Mercy, not sacrifice. Now under this, I want to read a scripture in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why did your teacher eat with or why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Because Jesus saw himself as a physician of sorts, a spiritual healer, and that's what he was there for. So he says that they need a doctor, um, but the ones that are healthy do not. But go and learn what this means. Now, who is he talking to? Who said it? The Pharisees saw this. They asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and seniors. That means that Jesus was close enough that he heard the argument between the Pharisees and um, his disciples, so he answered for them. I picture him going forward between them and pulling the disciples back. He says, I'll answer that. I can take this question. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now Jesus is making it very clear, his desire for mercy versus sacrifice. Now what he's referring to is the system of sacrifices that was embedded in the religious activity of the day. So for you to be able to connect with God according to their paradigm, you had to sacrifice something. It in itself is a biblical concept, and it is true. We do need sometimes to sacrifice. But a sacrifice could also be climbing a tree or going out of your way to make sure that you have time with God, going out of your way to read the Bible, to pray, to communicate with Him, to go to church. And Jesus gathered people from different segments of society, not just the upright and or the holy community, but in fact, He leaned more toward, in the beginning of His ministry, by the way, He did not do that. His, he initiated with a plan and a mission and a purpose to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and to focus on exactly the Israelites. And that's why he told the Syrophoenician woman that and said that I'm sent to the lost sheep. It's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. And the woman, of course, argued with him. That's when he started to become convinced about different groups of people on earth. Some that impressed him, some did not impress him as much. But the more time he was living in a social environment and that of Judah, because he's in Israel, but in the region of Judea, the more he learned about the way people thought. And so he started forming opinions. You would think, well, being Jesus, he knew all things at all times anyway. He knew a lot. He knew what was in man's heart. John said it accurately in the end of the second chapter of the Gospel of John. He said uh, he didn't need any man to teach him about those men. He didn't he need a man's opinion because he knew what was inside of them. And he did not, therefore, commit himself to them, it says. So he was careful in his relationships with people because he knew everything about them. And it does not mean that he knew every single detail of everything they've ever done at every single moment because he was a human being. If he were, as a human being, to suddenly know every single detail about every single person's life, there's no way his human form would be able to capacitate that kind of information. You wouldn't want that either. 
it would be vexing. Uh, I like the story of the savant that had the photographic memory. And he was so amazing. This is on YouTube. You can go see the video. This man, uh, he kept his eyes closed most of the time because his brain in its processing of images had no gate. If he looked and did that, every single thing he saw was recorded forever in his brain. It could be text, it could be pictures, it could be anything. Well, he grew from the time he was young, this started happening to him and it pushed him to the brink of insanity, of course, because imagine if you cannot forget anything at all. Well, that was a photographic memory he had and to test him, in fact, they put him in a helicopter and flew him over Rome and showed him the city whereby on several occasions from the helicopter, he took pictures with his mind. They brought him down. This was a, a, an experiment with him. They brought him down and put him in a very big room and the walls were completely covered with material for like canvas and he recreated the city of Rome just with paints and in his like drawing and he reproduced the buildings. The buildings had the accurate numbers of windows on them. I mean, absolutely proved. This is on uh, YouTube, by the way. Fascinating to see. But Jesus was not like that. So Jesus knew things according to the Spirit of the Lord, what the Spirit of the Lord revealed to him. And so as he was learning, in the learning process of humanity, coming down, okay, let's see, we know that he began to find different categories of people, different types of people. But He's looking for mercy. He found out that I would rather that somebody be merciful and understanding than give me all these sacrifices. He spoke also about when you go to the house of God and you bring your sacrifice and you realize you have ought with your brother. In other words, you've not given mercy to someone. You've not forgiven someone. And leave that gift because it's invalidated. Its value is invalidated by the fact that you're holding on to that. Just go take care of that. Then come back and bring your offering. So Jesus had a focus on other things than we have. And he said it. The healthy do not need a doctor, but the sick. So that's what he was doing. He had a mission to go to the people that needed him most, or at least the people that were most open to him. Because the others were not open to him like this. Now, they were interested in him. They were fascinated with him. But it had a lot more to do with, with what they could gain for their own well-being. It's okay to want healing. It's okay to seek God for the things that you need in life. But they had a different kind of agenda, a political agenda, if you would. And Jesus had a way of looking through that and seeing the truth. And so to answer the question why uh, he felt this way and considered these, these categories of people, it's simple. What, the main difference between the people, and that's bringing us into uh, part two, which is two worlds. They're basically, Jesus had two worlds that he identified in scripture. And um, the main difference between the two groups was simple. And if we can answer, that's the question. What is the difference between the people? Because he categorizes people and he chose to be with the ones that the others did not choose. So what was his criteria for choice? What was, why did he do this? And if you can answer this question and, it'll, and determine where you are in these groups, then you'll know whether or not you're in the right place as for what Jesus prefers. You understand what I'm saying? It's, I'm getting a little complicated and trying to explain it, but Jesus likes a certain kind of person. I want to be that person. That's what I'm trying to say. And I don't want to be in a group or live in a world in which Jesus is not comfortable. I don't want to be a part of a social system that Jesus feels awkward in. I don't want to be in, in an environment where Jesus will be scrutinized, criticized, and, and restricted to only a certain level. I want to be in an atmosphere of people who are wholeheartedly open to him, seeking him, longing for him, wanting him. And so I start thinking about the question again, why did Jesus... Um, spend all the time? Why was he called the friend of sinners? By the way, it shows up like 15 times in the scripture. It's not just a couple isolated passages. He was constantly getting grief from the people. I could not do a message on all the passages, let me say that way, because it would take us hours to get through it. And it didn't merit an entire series 
a series, eight-hour teaching on Jesus, friend of sinners. But I could do it easily because there's so much information. So I isolated it to these things. In two worlds, we see Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So now I want to start here thinking about uh, Jesus begins to categorize people. Some of them were one way, some of them were another way. So as we start to see emerge from the psychology of Christ, what was his criteria for choosing? And he makes it very clear in this passage. We all know the passage, but I want to break it down a little bit to talk about it. So there were some who were confident of their own righteousness, A. In other words, they felt sufficient in themselves. I don't really need help from God. I don't really need the Lord's assistance. I, I think I'll go to the church so that I can, you know, be a blessing. I'll go to church. I'm going to go worship, you know, because I think God could use some of what I have. I know they may not be saying that, but their mentality starts to go that way. And it's especially easy if you're a pretty integrous individual who does dot your I's and cross your T's. So you're the well. You're the one who's not sick. But Jesus was a compassionate individual looking for people who did not have it all figured out. But this, see, this is the deception of this first category of people. They thought they had it all figured out. And this is what bothered Jesus. Because technically the first group of people that Jesus identifies were self-deluded. To believe that their system or their mentality was accurate and it's what God wanted them to be. In fact, they were so sure of it, even with the signs and wonders that Jesus did, they could not accept him. Because they had a measurement or a mentality about how to attain righteousness and good standing with God that limited Jesus' preferences or ideas. Jesus did not fit their description. And I've seen this through the years. You say, well, you've seen Jesus walk into a room and people decide whether or not they would accept him based upon some criteria they put upon. No, but I've certainly seen it with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. He meant in the form of the Spirit. I see the Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit. I see God's Spirit move into environments, into realms. I see groups of people gathered where God's Spirit will begin to walk and move. I've seen revivals begin. I've seen God start to do amazing things. And I have felt His passion and His desire to do great things. But then there are two groups of people in that room every time it happens. You understand? And one group of them are confident in themselves, they are sure of themselves, and they do have a tendency to do this next thing, to look down on everyone else. So the one that is self-confident is invariably going to meet people inferior to themselves by their own assessment. And those people are of a lower degree. So you do not look up to someone of a lower degree you look down. And it's interesting that the very idea, haughty, uh, lofty in your mind, I will find people, you know people look down to you because you start to be able to see inside of their noses because their head starts to tilt back. You can see into their nasal passages. When you talk to them, in fact, their head will go back. They want to look down on you. I like what the Bible says, that blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, that poor means crouched low looking upward so there are those that look up and there are those those that look down and this is who Jesus is addressing and identifying now we see the group forming confident of their own righteousness looking down on everyone else Jesus told this parable so he has a story an analogy to give to them a simple allegory put into words he said tell you what this is the story two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee. Now he's just naming a people group straight out. He didn't mince words. He said, one's a Pharisee. Which, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is the highest caliber of religion that you could have in his day. That's the holiest person there was. And the other, a tax collector. That basically was the other extreme. So you have two swings of a pendulum here. One completely to the good side, one completely to the bad side. 
And both of these people had their own mentalities. But right now, looking at the first, the Pharisee, he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Wow, that even prayer can become selfish. And even prayer, we can spend a lot of prayer energy on ourselves. We can spend a lot of spiritual energy on ourselves, worried about just ourselves, just our thing, our deal, maybe our, our endeavors. Our, but, but really, the balance is when we start to have people that we care about, the other's principle. But sticking to this story, he stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, okay, fasting is great. Prayer, there's nothing wrong with the things that he's doing. Jesus is not mentioning the fact that he's saying that he prays. That's good. Jesus endorses prayer. How many of you know that? Jesus likes prayer. Jesus did it. He both taught it and demonstrated it regularly. He was always praying. Very many times in the Bible it says he went off to pray. He would go to secluded places, to isolated places where he could be alone and pray. He would teach his disciples to pray. They asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. We've covered those passages. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Now, that's something Jesus did not do. So herein is exposed a motivation of heart that puts this guy into the first category. Confident of self looking down on other people. Boy, I'm sure glad I'm not one of these losers. I'm sure glad I'm not on that level. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm in church. My hands are lifted high. Not too high. I don't want to look desperate. But kind of halfway up. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Just the right size Bible. A lot of people think you absolutely need to have a physical Bible. I don't have a problem with a physical Bible. I don't have one. I have one at home. I rarely ever use it because I have all my devices have Bible in them and it's a lot more effective for me because I can search and study and do things more quickly. Well, some people still believe. I've been criticized for that. It's funny. Once you get people in a certain category, they have a criteria they believe is right. And they'll say, brother, where's your Bible? And I said, I have which one you want. I have one in this pocket. I have one in my bag. I have one inside my MacBook. I have one at home on my iMac. How many Bibles do you have? In fact, in each one of these applications, I have 37 translations. How many Bibles are you carrying around? I can come back and fight if I want to. I don't like to. I thank you, Lord. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. And he names some pretty bad things. It's not good to be a robber, an evildoer, or an adulterer, and, or a tax collector, which basically meant someone very corrupt that was kind of a parasite that fed off of the people's money and took illegal amounts and bribes and did what they did. They were notorious for that, and that's why they were hated. They were kind of like the police force in India. Um, when I lived in India, the police force had to live in their own communities. Uh, you would go to these buildings that'd be like several buildings. I think they do that in Malaysia too, and in many countries, police cannot just live in the general population of a community because they're so despised because of their corruption. So they live in these compounds, and all that look like you know government buildings. They're quite nice usually, and that's where they live, so that every all the neighbors are policemen, and they stick together because they are ostracized. That's literally just another form of being ostracized, they're compartmentalized into their own little policeman neighborhood and kept separate because of corruption in those countries. In America, it's not like that. I'm not saying police are not corrupt there. In Singapore, it's not like that. I'm not saying every policeman here is good. I'm sure corruption exists somewhere that we cannot always see. But by and large, the people accept it. But where people do something wrong, they are rejected. And that's exactly right. So this man is standing clearly apart by himself, away from the people he does not want to associate with, the ones that he's looking down on. I'm just painting a really clear picture of this first group. I fast twice a week. Fasting is good. I give a tenth of all I get. He tithes. He was happy about that. That's good too. But Jesus was looking at the heart. Because it's not the sacrifice he's focused on, remember. Now we go to the other guy as we're separating these worlds. This is, but the tax collector, 
and he gives some things about him. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Now he also, it doesn't say he's alone, but he is at a distance. I imagine he might be like in the sinner's section. And maybe in the synagogue at that time, there's a section that they would just kind of sit. It is true that often when somebody has sinned in their life, they have a tendency to sit way in the back like Matthew's back there. So they, they're, they get as far away from the front as they can. I picked like the holiest guy in the room I knew so that I could get away with that. So Matthew's is pure heart. He's back there. But I've seen people often will, will do that. They're kind of, when I was a young Christian, I would go right to the front. I was always in the front row, set in the front row. And I was, I was actually just like the Pharisee, well-trained. I, I prayed right. I spoke the right words. I wore my little knit tie back when that was the style. Remember the little knit ties, the straight tie? that I had a, a green knit tie and a little button-down shirt. And I would look neat. I had a little tweed jacket I would put on and I had a Dake's Bible. A Dake's Bible is a super huge annotated. Only the holiest of people had the Dake's Bible and I made sure everybody saw it. I would like just walk around with it open, posing. I mean, I was bad. I was like the worst that you could get. I was the, the, the brown-eyed boy or the blue-eyed boy. <laughs> the blue-eyed boy. Something was bad, but my eyes were blue. The blue-eyed boy of the pastor. The one that was favored. Praise God. I was the one up there catching the bodies when they fall. When he prayed for them, I would you know, do everything that had to be done. I was the guy putting the envelopes in the back of the pews or the benches so that people could give and making sure they were neat. I would go by. If they put the envelopes backwards, like some of them not in the same order, I would fix that. That bothered me. So I was very specifically caring about that. I, was, I would tithe on everything, of course. If you, if you, gave, if you bought me a Coca-Cola, I would figure, oh, I owe 10, the, the 10% of the value of that Coca-Cola. So I have to – I mean I was I – was, I wanted to be good. I really did. It was a pure desire to be right and do the good things. I'm not saying, see, I'm not trying to demonize this first group and say they're all bad. It's just they've been taught something. And they're discipled and trained, as was I. I was trained to be everything I was. Of course, though, after a while, that system fails. It always does. And when it fell apart for me, things didn't go the way I wanted it to. Of course, now I have a tendency to blame God for that. And that's exactly what people do. When their lives don't go right, when they've done everything right, and they've dotted every I and crossed every T, when things don't work out, they feel that God has cheated them as if God had owed them something. And they eventually even can separate from God. I know a lot of people who have backslid or left the church or left God because they did everything right. See, they went into the relationship with the wrong mentality. And it really is not always their fault. Sometimes it's because if you're in a religious system that teaches those principles, you simply want to do what's right. And I was taught those principles. I was taught great things, wonderful things. And I always talk about the great things that my pastors, my mentors, and the leaders taught me, but I also picked up some pretty religious habits. And, you know, we had the Tuesday night prayer meeting, and we had to pray just right. If you, I knew, you see, if you prayed eloquently enough, and your prayers were powerful, they would call on you more often. You would get the better prayer positions, because you prayed with authority and power. So I would listen to different guest speakers when they would come, and I emulated their style. I wanted to pray how they pray. I walked like my pastor, acted like my pastor, wiggled my legs like my pastor, pulled my pants up like my pastor. Hallelujah. I copied him. And it'll go to extremes. You have to understand my background, where I come from. I was uh, pretty much out there in bad neighborhoods doing bad things. So I had a lot of guilt I carried into the body of Christ. So I wanted to do everything right. And I unfortunately fell into this category. But God is merciful. 
It says now about the tax collector, this is different. He stood at a distance. Now, there was a time I did fall apart. My life fell apart. I couldn't dot all the I's, cross the T's anymore. Religion failed me, and I was miserable, and then I thought I was the one to blame, so I decided God didn't really want me anymore, and so I stopped sitting in the front. In fact, I remember the day I went to church and sat all the way in the back in the dark. Because I didn't feel, I felt too dirty to go forward. And really, that was the time when God recognized me, really recognized. Because I got to this category. Because the things in life did not work how I wanted to. I was miserable. And as I was miserable and religion was no longer satisfying me, temptation rose and I started sinning. I started doing the things that I had stopped doing those that year before, I left all that, praise God. When I met Jesus, I was washed in the blood and all that sin is gone and I don't sin anymore. And, and I had an attitude about it. And as time went on, uh, God does not like when we take credit for his blood. He does not like when we take credit. That's self-righteousness. And when I started to live that, God simply does one thing. When we do that, all God does say, okay, you can handle it. Let me hold my grace over here for a while. And he'll basically let you go through things that you tests you cannot pass. And that happened to me. So I committed some sins. I did said some wrong thinking, did some bad things. So I felt totally dirty and didn't want to be a part of the church. I didn't want to be up there in front. And I even decided I'm no longer going to be a Christian. I'll just fade off into the distance. And I went to church that last time. It's just sad. And that is the day, the only day, the first time that my pastor recognized from the pulpit, spoke and called me out of a couple of hundred people, called me out and spoke the word of the Lord to me and ministered to me and absolutely changed me. And I'm going to get to that in a moment about that justification that comes. But here we see this man, it's He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Why wouldn't he look up to heaven? When everybody looks up to heaven, praise God, hallelujah, we look up. We worship. No, it says he wouldn't look up. He didn't feel worthy to look up there. And if he did look up, who knows? God might look back and, and want to punish him. Maybe it's better that he just hide. This becomes part of your mentality. So he would not look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. This is self-loathing, anger at yourself. That I can't believe I'm that stupid. How many of you ever hit yourself? Like, at least in your head, stupid. Like, I'm not saying, like, hauled off and decked yourself and took a tooth out. I'm talking about, you know, like, stupid. It's a, it is an instinct to strike yourself when you're angry at yourself. You get mad and maybe punch your leg. Well, that's exactly what he's doing. So you stupid, stupid man. Have mercy on me. I'm so sorry. I'm a sinner. So he's exhibiting the right kind of attitude, at least the kind of attitude that draws Jesus. When this happens... When a person is that way, Jesus notices it. God notices it. It says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, now Jesus is making a very clear distinction between the two groups. This man, the chest beater over here, um, that's not even looking up, and if I took it personally, I would be insulted that he doesn't even want to look up to heaven at me. He's over there, but there's something going on inside of him I can deal with. Because he's being honest. And therein lies the differentiation of the systems that attracts Jesus. It's the honesty. He loves the honesty. It says, this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. And that word justified means made righteous. Made righteous means we throw the term around saved. I got saved. How are you saved? Because you believe in Jesus. He counts it unto you as righteousness. And so he justifies you. He acquits you. Uh, I was studying today in the scriptures where it says that, that we, our sins will be acquitted when we believe in Jesus. But if we do not believe, then we are already condemned. So that acquittal, to be acquitted does not always mean that you are guilt-free, just that they don't have enough evidence or something went wrong in the system. They've, people have gotten away with murder because of acquittals that were forced because there was uh, corrupted or tainted evidence or something like that. You know, you've seen law movies and maybe uh, some dramas, and you know that can happen. 
somebody can get away with things and uh, it's very frustrating and maybe the lawyer did something wrong. Maybe the police uh, did a seizure or an inspection they shouldn't have done. And so the laws can fight to get them acquitted. And sometimes the judge is forced to give an acquittal. That's the Greek term that's used when we believe in Jesus. So he counts you as righteous. If you're willing to come to him, come let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make you white. Scarlet's the darkest red there was. And so he's saying this. Now, this is Jesus' mentality toward this guy in the parable. And he goes on to finish in the passage. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the two groups also have two directions and two things that they do here. One group humbles themselves. The other group exalts themselves. And this is where I get the axiom by which I live. The way up is down. If you want to go up in the kingdom, it's down. The one who is least will be the greatest. The one who is the, the servant will be the one above all, at least in the realm of importance to God. And how does that substantiate itself? The anointing. The favor of God. If you show me someone who's anointed, I'll show you someone that has been to hell and back and has survived the process. Uh, right now, I, I was reading, there's a book coming out I really recommend it. I usually don't recommend people's books, but it's written by T.D. Jakes uh, called Crushed. Very, very powerful book. I saw an interview with him and a man, one of his uh, uh, protégés, if you would. He took him under his wing some years ago. Uh, this man is in the Houston, Texas area, has uh, like a number of campuses his church has grown so big he's only 37 years old and he has a number of churches growing one of the most popular pastors in that area and um, you would never guess his story but he tells the story in an interview with T.D. Jakes where they said Jason one of the very very touching I mean I, I was watching it in a food court I was just waiting for my scooter to be repaired and I went online and people must have thought I was crazy because I, literally I had fountains of tears dripping off my cheeks watching that interview. Powerful. I'll get the link and put it online if you can um, watch it. It's really powerful. And it was a man who went through bad things, horrible things, and was crushed. Life crushed him. Even as a Christian serving, it's a, it's a long story, but I think you'd appreciate it. But here we find really the answer of why Jesus was more comfortable with sinners. Because they were honest about themselves. The religiously minded people lived a code of self-righteousness built upon keeping of rules, regulations, the aforementioned tithing and fasting and all these things that I do. But they were not depending on that as a means of saying thank you to God or contributing to him as much as a means of self-justification. And God couldn't honor it. And this is the dilemma of the religious mindset. It serves to mask the truth of our corrupt state. It's an excuse. I like Paul's confession in the scriptures about himself. He's talking about, in fact, he says, I'm the chief of sinners, first of all, he said about himself. Because, and he said that in context that Jesus came for sinners, of which I am chief. So he self-appointed, said, I'm the worst sinner that's ever walked the face of the earth. So that's the right attitude. He also says, oh, wretched man that I am. He confesses and says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I don't want to do, I do. So what can be done for me? Oh, wretched man. He's self-loathing. He was the kind that beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. God recognized that and raised the Apostle Paul up to do amazing things. He was the one justified before God rather than the other. So Jesus was and is the truth. And this is the thing about honesty. Honesty is truth, is it not? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no lie in him. Do you think Jesus was at ever any moment dishonest? No, it just was not. He was not hardwired to be so. He was, I'm sure, ruthlessly honest at times. If you asked him something, I'm sure he gave you a frank, clear answer. He certainly spoke the truth to the Pharisees. That's why they hated him. So if he also spoke the truth, to Pharisees, that means to sinners he was speaking truth. But they didn't need to be taught truth because they already knew it. They knew exactly who they were. So Jesus didn't have to waste his time exposing some hidden agenda or some hidden corrupt ideas because they admitted it openly. They knew who they were. 
And Jesus found it was a lot less resistance to deal with those people because they were so frank and open about who they were and what they were. And so, by the way, this is when we're considering this concept, never think that Jesus sinned. Never think that, see, Jesus did not come and hang out with the sinners so that he could sin because he was sinless. The Bible is very clear about it. But he said it earlier. He came because who needs a physician? Who needs a doctor? The sick. The one, so I'm going to help them out. And how will we ever put ourselves in a position of helping people if all we ever do is hang out with people who are well? And I'm going to get to that in the last part. Part three, the problem with religious mentality. Jesus breaks this down in, there's four things we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start. Can you go to the next day? Yeah. Okay, the first one is it, it's childish. Back up to that. So this is the first thing under the four things about the problem. There's a problem with it, but Jesus, this, this chapter, he breaks it down. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they said he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus is being very clear about the fact, he says that the generation of people around him uh, were like children. So what is a child like in this regard? Now there's nothing wrong. The scripture does say, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And that's into the letter to the Corinthians, Paul said that. And also it says in Corinthians, I don't have it on a slide, but I'll just read it to you. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childhood behind me and the childish things. For now, we see only reflection as in a mirror, but it says then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So Paul's talking about the fact that there is a mindset of childishness, being like a child, and religion tends to fit that. In fact, that's the one thing I've really always been amazed in religious environments, is how childish adults can be. Of course, that doesn't restrict itself to religious environments. You can have that in your company. You can have that certainly at your school, at a university, in any workplace. You can just be amazed at how childish an adult can be, like little kids. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said about the religious environment of Judea. And what I do know is I know people that have been to the Holy Land, and I'm often invited to go to the Holy Land, and now I have somebody wanting to pay for me to go to the Holy Land, actually two people, so I may end up having to go to the Holy Land. So if I go, now you can tell it's not a burning desire. A lot of Christians would be like, oh, I get to go to the Holy Land. But honestly, all I've ever heard about the Holy Land is negative things. Anybody I talk to, how was the trip to the Holy Land? It's a little hot. But it was interesting, dusty. Uh, and then I hear some horror stories about something that happened. And then they end up saying, well, um, the people, there's just so much religion there. They're so religious. Uh, that was what I heard one pastor say. I said, what do you think about the Holy Land? He says, I can sum it up for you. He says, it is the most religious place you will ever go. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, just structured like it is manifested religion. Everything is religion. Everything. I said, you mean spiritual? He said, no, not at all. It's just rules, laws. Said, it, everything is built on religion. And I think that's exactly what it was like in the day of Jesus. And Jesus was not looking for religion. He was looking for a spiritual relationship. And sadly, the Bible says that he came to his own and his own received him not. So we see here, uh, the next one, it, we're looking at the negative things about it, the religious mindset. It's also resistant to God. The passage continues. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted 
to the heavens? Like, how high do you think of yourself? No, you go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, this is some of the harshest words Jesus ever speaks. Now, who is he addressing? He's addressing this crowd with a religious mindset. These people that are constantly, see, because that mindset absolutely resists God. Which is, the irony of it is in their attempt to be close to God, they resist God. And they resisted Jesus. So Jesus uses this harsh comparison of the social atmosphere of these regions he mentions, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Sodom. You know more about Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they did bad things there. So in that case, it was historically, in Jewish culture, historically bad places like Sodom and Gomorrah. He rained down sulfur and brimstone. That's like the epitome of judgment is Sodom and Gomorrah. We use it in legal terms. He's a sodomite. And, you know, we, 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 there's a reason why, of course, I don't go get graphically into that. But let's just say they were bad places. And Jesus is saying they're better off. He says, I can handle that. I can handle their debauchery, their wickedness, their drunkenness, and their sinfulness. But what really bothers me is you people. And he says, it's going to be more bearable for them in the day of judgment than for you. If I had heard this, I think I would have had a real moment of clarity. But they did not receive it. And they were not listening. So being that the legally structured social understanding of what man expected God to be was very specific and controlling, God was not accepted. And remember who Jesus is. I'll just read this passage to you in John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did and do receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And that's where he drew the line. This is, this is his rant when he blew up. He finally had enough. He says, you realize what I have done here? You, you've seen the miracles and you still don't believe. I've raised the dead. I've opened deaf ears. Blind eyes are open. You've, you have eaten loaves and fish, and you still are testing and rejecting me. If I had done these miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, if I had done these middle, in the most notoriously wicked places in your history, they would have repented a long time ago. But you're not, because you're so hard-hearted. You're like whitewashed tombs, he says in another passage. That all that matters is the outside. Keep it white, pretty, beautiful memorial of death. And on the inside is dead man's bones. That's the, the most angry you ever see Jesus get, which, by the way, is never with sinners. Never does he say anything like, quite the contrary. Well, then it's more advantageous to just be a sinner and sin. No, Paul clarifies that. He says, don't say that if you sin so that grace can abound. But the mentality of righteousness is what Jesus was always after. It's, you're hard-pressed to, to search the scriptures without finding Jesus complaining somewhere about that system. It's proud is another one. We're looking at the things about the mentality. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, God was pleased to cause these sinners to come to the knowledge of Jesus. They accepted Jesus. They were happy to be with Jesus. Jesus was in their, their homes, invited to their houses. Uh, he was also invited to religious leaders' houses like Simon. 
and Simon did not give him water to wash his feet and did not give him this and did not, you know, Jesus com later complained. Jesus would have never complained, though, if he hadn't been critical of that sinner. Because not only did Jesus choose the sinners to be with them, to help them and restore them, by the way, that same woman with the alabaster box, most theologians agree, was Mary Magdalene, from which seven demons were driven out. So she got set free. Why? Because she knew what she was. She was open to Jesus, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ delivered her. She immediately became a part of his ministry and supported her um, his ministry from her own means, it says. Hidden from the wise and learned, it says there. Why? Because proud, religious mentality is proud of, of what it is, who it is, what you've achieved. and It's okay to be happy about doing good deeds and good things, but when we misunderstand it as a system of self-justification, it turns Jesus off. He just, he's disgusted by it. He doesn't like it. It's cruel also. This is where Jesus, now I'm read, this is all coming from the same passage in linear. It's just going straight through. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, this we always take this passage away from this context, but now see it in the light of the context. He's saying this in the light of people who are caught up in that system of corrupt mentality of religion. So he's telling them. You understand, he's not saying this to the sinners, because the sinners he can deal with. He's okay, but he's speaking to the religious-minded. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. We're in burden by what? By the rules, the laws, the pressure of that, that system. The religious life is a crushing and burdensome existence that God never intended for man to live. It requires that you respond under threat of punishment. So they're always afraid, biting their nails. And if you go to a religious church, you can feel that way. You always feel like the pastor's going to uncover you or point at you or the messages. You shouldn't feel that. You should always feel encouraged. And you think, well, you're making me feel bad with this message. No, I'm not. I'm trying to help you to understand. Just don't have the wrong mindset. Come to me, all you're weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Most of you know my testimony. In 1995, I had an experience with God. Before that, I was in full-time ministry for 10 years. I worked very hard. During that time, I was the poster child of religion. I, I was perfect in everything. Everybody praised me and said, wow, he's so great. I taught the best deliverance or um, uh, spiritual warfare clinics. And I was the spiritual warfare guy. If you needed to have a spiritual war, I'm the guy that, that you need to... Nobody's asking you. So they were the ones that would call me and I would go in and teach all this hubbub about all these things and I hear all these things taught these days and I'm like I don't whatever I'm just okay but I was there I did I did everything and people embraced that and they were happy about what I could do until God came to me and this is the scripture he used to set me free as I was driving away to go on a rest that was 1995 uh, April 7th, 8.45 a.m. is when I got touched. But on April 5th or 4th, we were on our way to drive to that place. And as I departed driving to where God had that encounter for me, God spoke to me and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I heard that scripture so clear, I kept driving. About five minutes later, he said, come to me, all you who are weary. But he spoke it again. And I thought, okay. Five minutes later, I mean, it was just like somebody yelling at me in the spirit. I heard it about 50 times on that trip. It just kept coming. I've never, God has never spoken to me that loudly, that se uh, sequentially as he did. It was just through that whole, it took, because it's a 12-hour drive where we went. And during that whole trip, I kept hearing this. By about the 50th time, I was nervous. I was scared about what, what do you mean coming to you? I had no idea. Of course, I could never predicted what would happen to me after that the encounter I had with God because I didn't know anything about it. But that's what it was. I came to him. 
and I was set free. 1995, April 7th, 8.45 a.m., when I got back home and had my 15-page prayer outline to pray, very structured, specific, naming all the demons and the prince of the power of the air here and there and this demon, that demon. Oh, it was horrible. It was like a ball and chain every day. It took me three hours a day to pray, and I did it always. Always. I never missed. I'd rather die. I'm going to pray. Praise God. And I, and I picked up that prayer outline after that encounter. And God said to me, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm praying. He says, that's not prayer. Drop it. And I dropped my outline. And I watched it fall to the ground. It was like in slow motion. A symbolic moment. I watched it hit the floor. And the glory of God came into my house. And I started weeping. It was like a whirlwind. He stayed with me. He's never left since then. Free. <sighs> Why? Because I took... His yoke, his yoke's not heavy. He's not cruel. He doesn't want to put that burden. He said that about these other people. The first group of the aforementioned Pharisees, he said, you travel and see looking to make the proselyte and you put upon them heavy burdens, but you don't lift one finger to help them with it. You bring law to them. You teach them these laws. And he said, come to me, all you who are burdened. The Holy Spirit invites us to respond to spiritual impulses of love. The Holy Spirit wants us to walk in freedom. The Holy Spirit wants to laugh with us and hold our hand and enjoy the things of life. God the Father wants to walk with us in the cool of the day in the garden and just talk about the animals. Our fellowship. Now I'm going to end with this, number four. Reconciliation far Reconciliation. Now this caught my eye in relation to Jesus and what they said about him. So I want to go right into it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And what old is he talking about? We always say pretty much, well, it means that all the sins from before. No, it has a lot to do with what sin is. If you See, what sin is, Jesus, what traditional leaders were saying sin was, Jesus didn't count as big of a sin as the religiosity. So I said it'd be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom than for you because they would have repented. They would have changed. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now he does. He reconciles us by the blood that he shed at Calvary. When we believe we're washed and cleansed, reconciled means to be brought back in fellowship with. So he brings us back to himself. But then it says, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled us so that we could reconcile people to him. And that's really the gospel. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You say, what message is that? What I've been preaching for the last hour. That's the message of reconciliation. That God came to set up a new system so that you could be unified with him and brought to him. And it has nothing to do with pretense or our mentality. It is all about just being honest with him, open and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Very simple. So God comes to our life to save us, to set us free. Why? So that we can help people get saved and set free. How? By giving them this information. Come to him. You're weary. You're heavy laden. I watch people under religious bondage, not just Christians. I watch it. I see people going to temples. And, and it's just such a suffering look on their face. I see people uh, this time of year, they're paying respects to dead. They're doing so many things and it's a burden. And I know people within families, if you don't do it, then the family's angry at you and it's going to come back upon them. You know how all that works. Of course, I'm not preaching to anyone who doesn't know that. 
It's the same within any any religious culture, within Islam, within Buddhism, within any within Christianity. Structured religion is always going to be the same thing. It's you do this or you're in trouble. And therefore, all the people that are subject to it also believe if we don't do this, we're in trouble. If you're not doing it, we're going to get in trouble, so you better do it. We're going to make you do it. We all have to do it together. And it's a heavy, crushing weight that comes upon us. But we've been reconciled. And the message is that there's reconciliation. And if anyone is in Christ, you come into Christ, then the new creation has come. A new way. New purposes, new ideas, a new mindset. The old is gone, the new is here. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen? These are the things that we saw. Mercy, not sacrifice. That's his requirement. He's not looking for a bunch of sacrifices. He wants us to live in mercy, walk in mercy, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. The two worlds, he made it very clear. And it's not the only time. He always divides into two categories. He's, very, he's pretty cut and dry about categorization of people. It's one or the other. Either in or you're out. It's black or white. And the secret of it is being white instead of in the black. It's not that hard because it, all it takes is dependence upon him. The problem with religious mentality, it's childish, it's resistant to God, it's proud, it's cruel. I talked about the Holy Spirit concerning resistance to God. I've seen religious, the hardest place for me to preach. 1995, he commissioned me with the ministry of reconciliation to the Spirit, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I brought it in the churches. Uh, the poorer the church, the less noble the church, the greater the move of God. And they were open. They were open. People on the streets, the drunks on the corner, the prostitutes, they would weep on the corner with me as I told them about Jesus. And the power of God would touch them. Because why would I, a pastor, dare associate with them on the street? No, they're the ones I look for. I went to, one time I was on my way to church, and there was a bunch of guys on the corner. They were drunk, and they had their bottles. And I said, come on up. We're going to have some music up here. Well, isn't that a church? I said, yeah, it's but come. Well, we're drinking our beer. I said, bring your beer. They said, we can't bring our beer in the church. I said, why not? Really, Pastor? I said, yeah, come on. I brought like six guys, six drunk guys, set them on the front row. And they were like laughing, drinking. I started the worship. The power of God came. They put their beers on the floor and slid them under the chairs. I didn't have to say anything. God touched them. And before you know it, this is the testimony they said later. We've never felt anything like it. By the time you got to the third song, we were sober. And they were drunk. He said, we, it was a sign and a wonder for them. God absolutely sobered them up. And they were amazed. And as a result, they gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Very powerful. It was a young man. I remember going on the streets of New Orleans. And uh, nobody was evangelizing. Nobody was going to the streets that most of them would stay in. New Orleans is a high crime area. At that time, it was the highest crime city in America which I grew up in, so I'm used to it. It doesn't frighten me. You just know where to walk and where not to walk, basically. And so I walked where you're not supposed to walk on purpose because I knew that's where the sinners are. And I even had my little tweed jacket and my little tie and a handful of tracks and my Bible, and I went to them, and they, they were, you know, I had some scary moments. But I remember I went to the one lady. She was at a laundry facility where she was taking her laundry out in a basket that she had just washed and folded and she opened the, the back of her car the trunk and she put the clothes in there and that's where I walked up to her and I said hi how are you today do you know Jesus loves you you know I mean just real corny and straight in her face and she looked at me oh he loves me does he and I said yeah she said well I'm a prostitute and I said so <laughs> so what does that have to do with Jesus's love for you she said you mean Jesus loves me just just Jesus loves prostitutes. I said, yeah, in the Bible, many times. So I started talking to her. I said, you have to understand who Jesus is. I think you misunderstand him. And I explained it to her. And right there at the back of her car, she prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the next day was Sunday. That was a Saturday because I would evangelize on Saturday. The next day she went to church. She got up in front of everybody and testified. So, like, uh, uh, I don't know if I fit in here or not. 
Uh, but I just want to kind of tell you about what happened to me. This young man yesterday is walking down. She, first of all, just so that you know, I'm a prostitute. Like she come right out and said, I was like, yes, that's awesome. She told him openly. And she testified. She confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, started crying in the church in front of everybody. Jesus loves those people. They're not resistant to God. They're easily open. The drunks, the prostitutes, the drug addicts. I've done a lot of ministry in rehab houses and places. And gosh, those people are open. You say, Holy Ghost, everybody's crying. You know the most resistant atmospheres I've ever had to teach in, ever? Bible schools. Isn't that strange? The least open environments I've ever shared in are Bible schools. The second most difficult atmosphere, pastors' conferences. Being honest. It's proud. It's proud. It's cruel. Don't come under the bondage of it. Number four, reconciliation for reconciliation is what we saw. Amen? We're finished.